It is uh, great to be with you again. For those online, welcome. We're so glad that you have joined us equally. Um, before we get in today, I'm just going to pray over our time together. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, I want to thank you so much for the ability to express our love for you in song, um, to express our love for you in the taking of the emblems, our heart full of gratitude. And I pray, Lord God, that we may continue in that posture by having our hearts open to you now about what you might want to say to each of us. Lord, guide us, encourage us, and uh, move amongst us, we pray, in these remaining moments this morning, so that we are convinced that we met with you today and to allow you to continue your good work that you've started within each of us. So I want to pray this now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. What is the best thing that you like about where you live, about your house? What is, that, what is that particular thing that you like the most? There could be many things that you like. Um, where Edwina and I live at the moment, it's truly a gift from God. After all the housing problems that we had last year, the place that God has uh, allowed us to rent now is truly a blessing. Now, um, we know that we're not going to be able to stay there long term because rents keep on going up and up and up. And so we are thankful simply for the time that we're going to be able to spend there, aren't we? But one of the things, uh, we have some interesting features about our house. And I wonder if this feature is something that you think is good. Here's a couple of pictures of me um, with a type of fences at our place. Now, um, pretty high, huh? Pretty high. Now, some of us may say that we wish we had fences that high around, around our places because fences that high particularly would make our house truly feel more like a refuge from the world. You know, famous American poet Robert Frost back in 1914 um, wrote words which would get repeated time and time again. Robert Frost wrote the words, good fences make good neighbours. Now, is that true? I mean, how many times have you said it? How many times have you thought it? So by that measure, considering the size of the fences at my house, do I have the perfect neighbours? Am I the perfect neighbours, considering we don't see each other at all? Does that make for a perfect living environment? Now, despite what we may have personally attached to Frost's words... I wonder, I wonder if it's true or not. I wonder, though, if we actually understand the original meaning of Frost's words because he was speaking ironically about these issues of fences because what Frost was saying is saying it is the fences that we build that is ultimately isolates ourselves from each other. It is actually good fences that make bad neighbours. Because ultimately, the fences that we put up, our literal fences, or the fences that we establish in our hearts and in our minds, they are the things that ultimately separate us from one another. We might think, yes, I want to live in the world, but I don't have to engage with it. And that is often reflected in our attitude to the fences that we have at our place. Now, this type of attitude actually is counter to God's mission to this world, that he loves so much, and the mandate that he has given to us as Jesus' followers. And that is then is counter to the vision that God has given us as a church. 
You see, God's vision for us as a church is what? Hopefully you're starting to get to know it more and more. God's vision for us as a church is to see Northwest Sydney. You can join me if you like. The more the merrier. We are all about being all this and there together. So please, come along with me. It is to see Northwest Sydney be engaged and transformed with the faith, hope and love of Jesus. Now, the engaged word is really important here. See, God himself, God himself hasn't existed in all eternity, starting the cosmos spinning and then just taking a back seat. What we know from our stories is that God has been actively involved, engaging with the people that he created and that he loves so much. That's why he sent Jesus. And so as Jesus followers, engagement is to be something to be at our heart. And so today you have joined us, whether it be in the room or online, you have joined us if a week two of our series that is called Over the Fence. And this series is to help us better understand the religion of our neighbour so that we can engage them, so we can more meaningfully interact with them, particularly around the topic of what we believe and why Jesus is so important. Now, by Frost's words about good fences make good neighbours, does our series image there convey a good fence or a bad fence? It all depends, or I would imagine, about what you think fences are supposed to do. And by that image then, do you think that those neighbours, the two men there, do you think they are good neighbours? See, regardless of how high your fence may be at your home, being a good neighbour is not reflected on how high or low your fence is. But rather, being a good neighbour is about how much you are prepared to know your neighbour and to help your neighbour. That's what makes a good neighbour. And so it is an imperative for us then to overcome the heights of our fences that we may have at, at your place and to actually intentionally engage with your neighbour to make you a good neighbour. I can't do anything about the height of my back fence, but I can surely do something about going and talking to that neighbour who's on the other side of that high fence. It is up to me to reduce the height of the fences for me to be a good neighbour. Now, as we spoke about earlier on in the year, um, Jesus got to know people, got to help people, primarily through asking them questions. And so this series then is to help provide you some basic information about the religion of your neighbour so that you can ask questions to understand them better and to help them, ultimately to help them introduce them to Jesus. Now, if you are here last week, you may remember the key text for this series. The key text is something the Apostle Peter writes. When he writes these words, he says, In your heart, revere Christ as Lord. In other words, have Jesus as the number one thing in your life. Also, always be prepared to give an answer, he says, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But, he says, but always do this with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Now, last week, we looked at trying to better understand our Hindu neighbour. And next week, we're going to be looking at how to, to, to better understand our no-religion neighbour. And today, though, we're going to be looking at trying to better understand our Muslim neighbour because they are the three primary religions in our local area, Hindu, no-religion and Muslim. Now, can I just say up front that the 
profiling and treatment of many, many good Muslim people, especially after the events of 9-11, has been nothing short of shocking. And we can't help then but examine our own biases, our own um, judgment, our own fears about our Muslim neighbour. Now, we may believe very different things to what our Muslim neighbour may believe. But the vast majority of Muslims, the vast majority of Muslims actually are good and beautiful people. And the vast majority of them actually live up to what Islam is supposed to be about. Now, I'm not sure if you know that, but the word Islam actually means to surrender or to submit And the word Muslim actually means someone who submits or surrenders to Allah. And so the vast majority of Muslim people actually humbly live out this belief, this surrender or submission. And they are good and beautiful people which we must recognise, even though we may believe very different things. But it is the actions of the radical parts of Islam that has tarnished our view of all Muslims In many cases. And if our perception is affected like that, it will affect our desire and it will affect how we engage with our Muslim neighbour. And a lot of time, if we have that type of perception, our fences are incredibly high, would you say? And we want to live isolated from our Muslim neighbour. I wonder if that is true. But Jesus showed us Jesus showed us in the way that he loved us about the way that we are to love our Muslim neighbour. We are to love them. So what does our Muslim neighbour believe? Now, like, like last week, we're only going to scratch the surface this morning. And, uh, but they, I'm not quite sure if you know much about the, the Muslim faith, about Islam. But uh, their beliefs very much reflect the origins of Islam. Islam, and it's very different to Hinduism that we looked at last week, where Hinduism has its origins over 4,000 years ago and is not the result of a single person. Islam is only a relatively new religion in many regards. It started in the 7th century AD, about 600 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 600 years after that. And it is solely the responsibility, or its sole person is, is Muhammad, is responsible for, for starting the Islamic faith from there. Muhammad is their founder and their most sacred holy man. Now, Muhammad's early life had a profound impact about ultimately what he would be known for. He grew up effectively an orphan after the death of his parents in the Saudi Arabian city of Mecca where he lived his first 50 years of his life. Now, at that time, in the 7th century AD, Mecca was almost at the crossroads of major trade routes between Africa, the Mediterranean, Central Asia, as well as the Arabian Peninsula. Now, the religion of Arabia at that time was primarily polytheistic, which means there was many, many gods that the people in the Arabian Peninsula actually worshipped. In fact, there was 360 Arabian gods at that particular time. And Mecca 
was the centre of all this religious activity on the Arabian Peninsula. Now, when Muhammad was about 40 years old, we are told, he began to experience um, what is best described as religious trances, and he started to break out in verse. And... um, And these uh, intermittently then for the next 22 years. So for the next 22 years, he would intermittently break out in these trances, in these verses. And what he said during these trances was actually written down and that would form the basis of the 114 chapters of the book known as the Quran. So the Quran is a reflection of the things he said in these religious trances. Now, these messages of, of, um, that Muhammad said during these supposed trances was talking about the coming judgment of God, about the one, proclaimed one true God, and that was, flew in the face of the 360 Arabian gods at that particular time, as well as a message of, of, of justice for the oppressed and the weak. Now, these things that Muhammad actually said caused him a whole lot of problems in Mecca um, because there was a very polytheistic um, city. And so it caused him to have to flee from Mecca to Medina, also in Saudi Arabia. And um, the, when Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina, that then became year one of the Islamic calendar. So year one of the Islamic calendars when when um, Muhammad arrived at Medina, and that corresponds to our year of 622 AD. Now, um, so majority of Muslims have a very different calendar to the rest of us. Now, the Quran, though, although it's filled with all of these verses, these, these spoken words from the trances that Muhammad was in, it's not the only holy book. There's a, a couple of holy books in Islam, um, one of them including a book called the Hadith, Now, where the Quran supposedly recorded the things that Muhammad said while he was in these religious trances, the Hadith is the account of Muhammad's life and some other things that he said as well. Now, as you may be aware, Judaism, Christianity and Islam, in essence, all worship the same God. All three believe that there is one God. Now, the Jews call this God Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, or Jehovah. Christians, we basically just call God God, realistically. But for, 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 those, uh, for Muslims, they call this God Allah. Allah. Now, so all of these three religions are monotheistic. One God and one God only. Although these three have, have some very different takes, some more than others, on who this God actually is. For instance, the notion of the Christian Trinity is absolutely abhorrent to the Muslim. They just can't fathom that at all. It's, it's actually quite a, very rude, the concept of, of, the, of the Trinity. And so to the Jew, the Christian and the Muslim, this same God has been involved in creation and been involved in the early parts of the development of human history. So much so that all three share the same characters, same, share the same people of Adam and Eve, Noah and Abraham in particular. Those characters that we know so well as also shared in the Islamic faith as well. Now, the difference in these stories uh, between what Jews and Christians believe and that of Muslims, 
The difference is ultimately seen in what Muslims believe that Muhammad came to do. You see, as the Quran is believed to be the Prophet Muhammad's messages from, from God, then the Quran is the pure and uncorrupted, the pure and uncorrupted versions of the Jewish Torah, which is the laws of Moses, as well as the Christian gospel, they believe. Now, these writings and stories in Judaism and Christianity, Muslims believe, have been corrupted. They've been distorted by the sinfulness of their messengers. And so it is only Muhammad's words that is true and reliable. Now, now how, how does this get played out? Well, one of the stories that you'll find in the Quran is the story of Abraham going to Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son. Now, we know from our, our reading and our faith that we believe that Abraham took his, his son Isaac to do that. Muslims believe, though, that Abraham took his son Ishmael to be sacrificed on Mount Moriah. So there's a difference there between Isaac and Ishmael. The Muslims also believe then that Ishmael is in fact, and his descendants, he is the one that has, has God's favour. It is the Arab race that is actually God's chosen people, not Isaac's descendants being the Israelites themselves. And so this comes into the, the, this, this perception of needing to correct the corrupted stories that Jews and Christians had been perpetuating and actually correcting it in their opinion to making the story right. And so it's not actually along the lines of Isaac, but it's along the lines of Ishmael. And there's a number of other examples of that as well. Now, um, so Islam is very much has its origins, believe it or not, in Judaism, um, in the beginning of life development, and also in Christianity as well. Because Muslims even recognise Jesus as one of Allah's prophets. But Jesus is not the prophet. Jesus is someone special, sure, but he's not the prophet. The prophet is the last of their prophets that they believe, and that being Muhammad. He is the one who's to be most revered. He is the one who's to be most celebrated. Now, so, but Jesus is special, but just not the, the most special. So why Muslims cannot believe in the Trinity is because of their very strict interpretation of what they understand one God to actually mean. And so, therefore, you can't say that Jesus is God's own son because that is, has, implies that Jesus has an equality with God and that Jesus is God himself and something that Muslims cannot even com com comprehend because of their strict interpretation of one God. But that is very different, isn't it, to what our scriptures affirm. As the Apostle John writes, the Apostle John being one of the ones who followed Jesus around, one of his 12 chosen people, this is what John writes. He says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word being Jesus, as we know. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all Mankind, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen this glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. 
You see, John affirms the pre-existing eternal divinity of Jesus to make sure that nobody is in any doubt about the uniqueness, the sovereignty and the eternal nature of Jesus. He is more than a prophet. Jesus is God. And that is affirmed in our scriptures. Now, before I tell you a little bit more about what um, some of the other beliefs of Muslims, just a few quick little multiple choice questions generally about Islam and um, that may be of interest to you. The first one who calls out the, uh, the right answer gets a prize. So, you know, got to try and mix it up a little bit. So here's the, here's the first question. Here's the first question. How many times a day does the majority of Muslims pray? One, two, three, four, five. Who said, who said that? I think Don said that first. It is five. Don, here you go. That's right. Five times a day. Muslims pray five times a day. They pray at dawn, noon, afternoon, sunset, and at late at night time. They pray five times a day. I wonder how many times we pray a day. I wonder how much that is. All right, so that's question one. That might be something new to, to some of us here today. Here's question two. In Islam, how many names for God are there? 6, 15, 43, or 99? Six. six. Clive says six. Do I have any, any, any higher boots than six? 43, 43 says Don. Katrina says 99. Katrina, it is you. you, you. There we go. 99. Now, what may be of interest to you to know that um, Muslim people, a lot of Muslim people, they have something that is the equivalent of Catholic rosary beads. And on their, their rosary beads, if you like, are 99 beads, each one for a name or description of their God. And they, they go through each of the beads as they remember one of the names or cites one of the names. So you might see some, some Muslim people with a beads. That is what it's to recite, to remember the names, descriptions of Allah. Interesting, huh? 99 names. Quite amazing. Here's another, another question. The Muslim mosque, what does mosque mean? Does mosque mean a gathering place, teaching place, place of prostration, or Muhammad's place? Teaching place. Teaching place. Teaching place. Any other differences on teaching place? Place of prostration. Any other guesses? Lynn, I'm sorry. Clive gets it. It is place of prostration. Now, now we know this because particular, because if you see, ever see a picture inside a mosque when it's full, you'll see the guys have their mats out and they're down on their knees and they're face forward, put, placing their face on the ground. They're prostrating themselves, um, humbling themselves before Allah in their prayers. So a mosque means place of prostration. Interesting. Now, one of the other questions is that you may have heard the terms Sunni, Muslims and Shiite Muslims. What's the difference between those two groups? Is it because of theological differences? Is it because of leadership succession after Muhammad? Importance given to certain holy sites? Or different religious practices, particularly when it comes to food? Leadership succession. There you go, John. It is about leadership succession in, in actual fact. Now, in the, in the world at the moment, 85% of Muslims, 85% of Muslims are Sunni, 15% are Shiite. Now, um, 
the, what Sunnis believe is saying that after Muhammad died, because he had a number of companions, it was these companions who were able to succeed him and lead Islam. They were legitimate um, replacements for for Muhammad himself. But Shiites believe that it's only through Muhammad's family that a legitimate leader for, for Islam can actually evolve. It can only come from family lines, which is quite interesting. So it's all about leadership succession is the difference between Sunni and Shiite Muslims themselves. And as we know, this... this Tension between Saudis and Shiites has been going on for hundreds of years, even still today, and, uh, and often that can be exp- expressed quite brutally, quite sadly. All right, lastly, how many, pillar, how many pillars or sacred practices are... Oh, so it, Naomi, there you go. Happy birthday, Naomi. <laughs> there we go. There is five pillars of Islam. And... Um, and these five pillars are, if we go to the next slide, thank, thank you, thank you, Kate, is, um, is the five pillars or practices of Islam is this. There's a creed or profession of faith where you affirm belief in Allah. There is prayer that you do five times a day. There is alms, um, which means the giving to the poor via your own personal generosity or often through the payment of an alms tax that you have to pay. There is fasting, like you see in the month of Ramadan. And then there's also the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage is the last part of the pillars. And that is that if you have the financial capacity to do so, every Muslim is to make a pilgrimage to the holy city of Mecca at least once in their lifetime. So that's a little bit of information about, about Islam that you may not be aware one of the other things you may not be aware of is that it's upon the strict adherence to these five pillars of Islam that a Muslim's entry into paradise, or what they call heaven, will actually be determined. Now, interestingly, in the Quran and the Hadith, it, it records both, in both occasions that Muhammad said that he doesn't know whether or not Allah would allow him to go into paradise. Even with all that Muhammad did, he didn't, he, doesn't, he didn't have confidence of knowing what was going to happen after he died. Now, this lack of confidence after death is very different to what Jesus himself had and that we have through our faith in Jesus. I mean, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and one of the other criminals who were crucified with him acknowledged who Jesus was, what did Jesus say to him? He says, today you're going to be with me in paradise. See, Jesus knew where he was going to go and he told others to have confidence in where they will be going as well when they die. John mentioned that passage earlier on in communion about talking about from John 14, about the fact that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us and that we're going to be where Jesus is after we die. That's incredibly um, reassuring for us, don't you think? Now, this whole crucifixion scene with Jesus is one that a Muslim cannot understand. Because they cannot comprehend why Allah would allow one of his prophets to die a torturous death. So this dilemma for the Muslim about Jesus' death and about their lack of eternal assurance highlights perhaps the greatest difference between what Muslims believe and what we believe as Christians around those two particular things in particular. 
Now, Muslims use much of the same terminology as we may find, use in, and find in our Bible. They'll use words like sin and salvation, and instead of heaven, they'll probably call paradise. There's hell and one God and law and judgment and things like that. But what is missing from a Muslim's vocabulary is the word saviour. They can't comprehend the nature of a saviour. Now, that is because they believe that they and they alone must atone for the sins that they've done in their lives. That they alone must do that. And the way that they atone for their sin is by, is by doing good works, primarily upholding the five pillars of Islam. That's how you, you, you try to get on, on Allah's good side. Now, Islam teaches that every single person is born sinless, that they have no sin when, they, when they're born. And, and so this sinful, because there's a lack of a sinful nature that they, people don't need to be saved from. But however, if you do sin, is the result of the corrupt being corrupted by the world. But a Muslim then can be cleaned up, so to speak, by doing good deeds and doing things to try and please Allah. But the, but the Quran tells the Muslim that good deeds can cancel out the bad. But there is no indication at all about how many good deeds you need to do to cancel out the bad. And as we all know ourselves, we, have, we don't have a full appreciation of all the bad things that we do. Now, Muslims believe that they can ask Allah for forgiveness for their sins, but they are under the very clear understanding that Allah may forgive them or may not forgive them for their sins. See, there's no assurance of forgiveness for the Muslim person. There's no assurance of salvation for the Muslim person. So somewhat like it was for the Hindu, but unlike as it is for Christians, Muslims have to continually strive to do good, to try and get good from their God, from Allah, particularly after they die. Now, Muslims do believe that you have to be sorry for the things that you've done. You need to repent of that. But the idea of payment for sin being required by a holy God is not part of the Islam belief. So after you've established a good relationship with your neighbour, perhaps over a long period of time, you can start asking questions about what they believe. And then you might be able to get to a really, a really important point about, about whether or not being sorry will help the Muslim when they stand before the holy God to give an account of their lives on the day of judgment. Now, this point can actually come across in polite and respectful asking of more questions. Remember that we truly engage people not with what we know, but with the questions that we ask. So what some of the questions you could ask along these lines? Well, you could ask your Muslim neighbour, if whether or not a murderer should be allowed to go free if they say sorry in a court of law. Now, most Muslims would agree that if a judge is a good person, then the judge would, above everything else, make sure that justice is done. So simply by saying sorry in a court of law will not see the Muslim person, the Muslim murderer, be set free. And so then you could follow up with another question, a really personal question. 
You could ask them this. Well, do you believe that you're going to go to paradise? Do you believe that you're going to go to heaven? Now, Moses, as we know Moses, is actually one of the prophets of Islam. And so they uphold the things that Moses did, and particularly the things that Moses said, and particularly the Ten Commandments. But also, the Islam, the Islamic faith, Muslims have their own commandments on top of that as well. And so you can ask them, have you kept all of the commandments perfectly? It'd be interesting to see what their response is. If they're honest, they say, oh, maybe I lied, you know, I've lied, or maybe I've lusted after someone in my heart. If they're honest, they may admit that they haven't kept all the commandments. So he asked them, if a judge can't let a murderer go free simply by saying sorry, is Allah going to let you into heaven simply because you say you're sorry? You see, there is no ability for Muslims to make atonement for their sin. And so it all comes down to a bit of a little bit of a... Is it, going to, is it going to happen or not? See, this is where Jesus becomes so important to the conversation. Because as we know, Jesus is the substitute for our sin. Jesus is the one who atoned for our sin to pay the price for the sin that we have committed. Because we ourselves cannot atone for our sins. Even by good works, we can't atone for the sins that we have done. Jesus died on the cross for us to be forgiven and for us to have confidence before God when we get to see him face to face on that last day of our lives. Now, the key to our encouraging questions and engaging questions with our Muslim neighbour is around their lack of eternal assurance. I mean, our scriptures affirm these points. John, again, says this, if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, but not only ours, but also the sins for the whole world. And the Apostle Paul then follows up and says this, because of Christ and our faith in him, we can come boldly and confidently into God's presence because we have been forgiven by our Saviour who has atoned for our sins. We can come confidently and boldly into God's presence, something that the Muslim, our Muslim neighbour will not have because they don't know whether or not they're going to be forgiven or not, no matter how much they uphold the five pillars of Islam. They just don't know, even if they are sorry, even if they do repent. They don't know whether or not they're going to be forgiven or not by Allah. This is where Christianity stands out because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done on the cross. This is our great affirmation of what we believe. And this is what sets everything apart, every other religion apart, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You know, out of all the neighbours that we could have who have got different beliefs to our own, have we relationally, have we spiritually, have we even physically built really good fences to separate us from our Muslim neighbour? 
you know, engaging with someone from the Muslim faith, engaging them around the issues of what we believe may be scary, especially if we in our modern times have inadvertently and so very sadly demonised most, if not all, Muslims for the actions of the radical element of Islam. How high are your fences to your Muslim neighbour? So what would our Lord and Saviour Jesus say to each of us about how we are to interact with our Muslim neighbour or anybody of a different faith to ours? What would Jesus say? Well, Jesus tells us. He tells us in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. He says, here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colours in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket or behind a fence, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Tell me, depending on how high your fences are at the moment, your physical fences like the ones at my place, or the fences that you have set up in your heart and in your mind, how free are you to keep open house with your Muslim neighbour? How free are you to live open and generous lives with your Muslim neighbour so that they then can be open to our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. What are your fences like? And if you've been living under the under an impression that good fences make good neighbours. Now, if you are someone here today, be it in the room or online, and you're trying to be good, trying to be good enough to get entry into heaven one day, but if you know that still deep down you have doubts, you have concerns about whether or not your good is going to be good enough for God, then I wonder how you interpret what I've said today about how you can be 100% guaranteed, 100% assured that you are forgiven and that when you die, you're going to be with God in heaven. I wonder if any of us in this room today, even if we've called ourselves a Christian and a Christian for a long time, we still have doubts about whether or not our good is good enough. I wonder if there's anyone in the room today who needs to acknowledge, you know what, Troy, I want to have that 100% assurance of Jesus' forgiveness for me. I want to have that 100% assurance that when I die, I'm going to be with heaven. I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven. Now, if you're someone here today who's still living with those doubts, that's okay. But why not make today the day when you become 100% convinced by opening up your heart to the Holy Spirit and saying, I accept Jesus and his words that says, today you're going to be with me in paradise because of our faith in him and what he has done for us. If that's you today, even if you've been coming to church for all of your life, but you still don't have that assurance, why not make today the day when you acknowledge what Jesus has done and come forward and acknowledge that for your own life?
Let us not be like our Muslim neighbour who doubts our assurance. Let us stand and come confidently and boldly into the throne room of God knowing that Jesus has forgiven us. And so we have absolute 100% assurance of what Jesus did and what Jesus will do on that day that each of us will face. Will you join me in prayer? Lord God, I give you thanks and praise that this morning that we have the opportunity to understand our Muslim neighbour a whole lot better. And Lord, I have to examine myself, as many of us may need to examine ourselves as well today, about how high that we've established our fences between us and our Muslim neighbour. It could be the Muslim workmate. It could be a Muslim friend, a school friend, you know, whatever it may be. I wonder how many of us have set up really high fences to separate us from our Muslim neighbour. Lord, we thank you for what you've taught us today, what you've revealed to us today, and what you've affirmed in our spirit about the uniqueness of Jesus and how Jesus is the key above everything for our own lives but also for our conversations with the Muslim neighbour who you love. Lord God, I pray that you give each of us courage. I pray, Lord God, that you give each of us the ability to... Um, to overcome any biases and judgments and perceptions that we have wrongly held about good and beautiful Muslim people. Lord, I pray that you transform our hearts so that we can be that light that shines for you and so ultimately to see people come to know Jesus personally. Lord, I want to pray for Muslim people, Lord God, as we want to pray for Hindu people from last week. We want to pray for those people, those good, beautiful people, that they may come to a revelation about Jesus and that we can have an involvement in, in proclaiming and demonstrating Jesus to this world that needs to know him personally and for all eternity. Lord, I want to pray this now in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.